Hi, David. Hi. I got a joke for you today. Oh, boy. Why can you never make reservations at the library? I mean, I have some ideas, but I feel like I'm just, you should just tell me. Because they're always booked. What's the sound effect for a blank stare? <laughs> I think it's the wah, wah, wah. <laughs> That is, um, did you write that joke? Oh, uh, no. I, I, because it's in keeping with your sense of humor. <laughs> can I, can I, can I give a shot? Can I take a shot? Well, you got to rank it. Oh, I do need to rank it. Um, out, out of 10? Yeah, out of 10. I'm going to rank it a four. I think it's a four. It's a solid... A mm. solid four. See, I picked this joke specifically because it's on topic. It has to do with books. And well, for, I still no, get a four. I thought it would raise my score just a little bit. Well, it did. <laughs> what was it originally? A three? A one? I mean, I don't, I don't want to be mean. Anyway, okay. I don't want to be mean. Right. Can, I, can I take a shot? I mean, now that I've given you a four, I feel like the amount of magnanimity, that's a good word for you, that it would take to get higher than a four is not likely to happen. But here's one for you. It's already a one. This is, a, this is a story, sort of. Why did Humpty Dumpty have a great fall? Why? Well, to make up for his miserable summer. <laughs> David, that is a truly awful and, and brilliant joke at the same time. I'm also going to award you a four. Oh, thank you. I feel like, I feel like we've... Achieved something And then here. subtract three from it. Oh. Well, enough of the nonsense. Let's get on with the nonsense. Welcome to the tooth, well, second episode of Withywindle. A show, part book club, part nonsense. It's a whimsical interactive show for kids who love stories, words, and grown-worthy jokes. You know, your weekly adventure through the wild world of wordplay, featuring, of course, some of your favorite authors and illustrators. I'm David Kern. And I'm Graham Pittman. On this episode, we'll be chatting with the great Andrew Peterson, author of the Wingfeather Saga, and kicking off our conversation on E. Nesbitt's The Railway Children. And eating snacks. And eating we're, snacks. We're going to eat snacks, right? What are our snacks for tonight, David? We have the miniature shareable Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we have the vanilla cream Oreos. I, I think those are unassailable choices. Do you know what unassailable is? I'm, I'm asking. Uh, I don't know. I'm hoping you know. Undefeatable? Undefeatable. Let's say undefeatable. Someone's going to have to look it up and email us. Yep. Which reminds me, did you know that people can get in touch with us? Yeah. I, I mean, we recorded the last one a week ago and I'm already forgetting. They, I know they can either email us or they can write your name on a pigeon, carrier pigeon, yeah, carrier pigeon, throw it out a window. Right. If you can pull off Pony Express, we're not going to deny the horse when it comes, but it's just harder to pull off in 2021. Yeah. Try, but try every method. Try all the all methods. Yep. Email is probably the most likely scenario to get to us the most quickly, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's also the least adventuresome. Yep. So choose your own adventure there. Exactly. If you want to go the email route, you can email us at podcasts, plural podcasts at goldberrybooks.com. Of course, we hope you're subscribed to this podcast. If you liked that first episode with S.D. Smith, Sam Smith, we hope you'll, you know, leave a little, a little starred review wherever you're subscribing. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and tell all your friends. What level of star should they give us? <laughs> tooth. Not a tooth. <laughs> three, three. Fifth. Fifth. Give only, us a, only fifth stars. <laughs> I can't say this. Five, five stars reviews. <laughs> say that. <laughs> five times fast. <laughs> 
anyway we we hope we do hope you like the show we've had a great time making it and i think this promises to be another really interesting episode hey what's that sound well that sounds like the signal that we're supposed to move on to the book i think is that right? Yeah. Okay. I, I asked just do you, that? why are you asking me back? I don't know. I want to make sure that we're on good terms here. It's not a, it's a benevolent dictatorship, not a regular dictatorship. Mm, okay. Well, which, of course, that brings us to E. Nesbitt's The Railway Children. Did we ever, we decided what, what E stood for, right? I don't think we got to decide it. I think our parents decided that. You think so? You think that was a given name? It's, we didn't give it to her and then they applied it retroactively? It, it would be weird. But this is a weird podcast. I can't so. remember what the E is. Is it Einstein? Uh, it seems unlikely to be Einstein. English. It, she writes in English. English Nesbit. Edward? Eduardo. Eduardo Ed- Nesbit. Edith. Mm. We were close. Eduardo was close. It is Edith Nesbit. That's right. That jogged my memory. Edith Nesbit. She wrote more than 60 books for children. We talked about it last week. We don't need to go too much into her background because we want to focus on the book. If you want to learn more, there's a few biographies out there. You can, um, you know, check out things online. But did you enjoy reading this first two chapters? We're going to do the first two chapters this week, and then we're going to do three, the threeth and the fourth next week. Uh, I absolutely enjoyed these first two chapters. Absolutely. I've never read this book before. Had you read it? I can't remember. I, I think I read it as a kid. Okay. But not, we, it's, we it's been a long this. time. Yeah, yeah. Right. But I mean, that I was a long time remember. ago. Yeah. We're adults. We don't remember stuff. Nope. I mean, we're kind of adults. I don't even know where I am or how I got here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to be you know, hard for people to find you then. But I know this book is in English. So do you want to summarize the first two chapters? Tell us what, what kind of happened and then we can just kind of... Sure. No, you know what? Should we pull out kind of our favorite things or should we um, maybe just analyze it in a very dry way? I was thinking we should make the most boring part. podcast yeah. possible. Okay. Yeah. We're on the same For like page. the next 10 minutes. Okay. We're on the same so page. in the, in these two chapters, we meet some children. There are three of them. Do you remember the, these children's names? Yes. Okay. Great. Would Moving you like on. to know them? Sure. Uh, there's Roberta or Bobby. Okay. There's Peter and there's Phyllis. Roberta, Peter, and Phyllis. And they're siblings. And in the first chapter... Old dad disappears. It's a mystery. He, he's he's a very busy man that usually makes time for them. And if he doesn't, can't make time for them, he explains that he can't make time for them in the most humorous way possible, that they feel loved anyway. Mm. Great, great lesson for parents there, right? But then he disappears and weird things are happening and nobody's telling the kids what's going on. And then next thing you know, they're living out in the country and all the comforts of home that they, that they had had disappeared and but they got to make the best of it their mother's very busy the father's gone so the kids spend a lot of time playing outside and in particular they like a they there's a particular kind of thing that they are very excited to be living near a type of transportation do you remember what that is i believe it is a railway it would make sense that it's the because it's not called like the airplane children the, the speedboat children yeah it's called the railway children so they're near a railway. I would read the speedway, <laughs> speedboat, speedboat children, <laughs> speedway children. It's just like NASCAR fans. So that's basically what happens. Although there is one part in chapter two where Peter gets into some shenanigans. Do you recall what Peter's shenanigans were? Yeah, Peter. Um, Peter's an adventurous kind of free spirit sort. Yeah. He would get. He he gets into. Um, he gets into what I would call kind of a wild kindness he has like that kind of streak in him hmm. where he's 
He's a little crafty. He's a little <laughs> sneaky. He's, he's clever. And he's trying to do things for a good purpose. And so in chapter two, uh, he ends up uh, stealing um, some coal so they can have a warm house because they can't afford it anymore. Does does he remind you at all? And I don't mean to suggest that the person that I'm about to reference would steal things. But does he remind you at all of a boy child who lives in your home? A little bit. Hi, Rowan. I did not to throw you under the bus. No, I think he, he reminds me of your children as well. Do you think that it's just because he is like, he reminds you kind of of children in general? In general. Um, maybe. I don't uh, Like, do you think, I, I, I want to introduce a word here. I want to ask you something. So when you talk about books, there's this fancy word called an archetype. And an archetype is when there's like a character or a picture or an image or something that happens in a book that you see show up in a lot of different books. Mm-hmm. It's something where you can make connections and see it happening all the time when you're reading. And that word is spelled A-R-C-H-E-T-Y-P-E, archetype. Do you think that these kids are archetypal children for children's literature? You know, like there's all kinds of children's literature. So do you think these kids fit that? And we're not, that's kind of a nerdy question, but. Yeah, I think I do. They're independent. Mm -hmm. They're precocious. Mm, Good word. Precocious as in maybe seeming smarter than children that that age maybe (laughs) normally. Um, Yeah, right. They're well read. Yeah. They're logical. It's, you know, <laughs> but also this, this book is a, a what, a hundred years old? More it's, than that, 130? I think it's, well, we can find out exactly. It was written in 1905, so 115 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so do you see, do you think that the kids in this book are different than kids now? In some ways, yes. And in most ways, no. <laughs> because kids are kids? Yeah, kids are kids. Kids have a certain nature um, of adventure, uh, and a, uh, eagerness to learn, I would Mm. would say, Mm. um, a willingness to learn. (laughs) And, and these kids kind of stick together. They form their own band, even though they're family, they kind of like a little gang, Yeah, you know? And I mean, all of that stuff still applies. What was your favorite part about this book? The first two chapters? Okay. Well, um, I think Mrs. Nesbitt, Miss Nesbitt, Miss E., Einstein, Edith Nesbitt, <laughs> is a fantastic writer. Mm. Well, give me an example. Like, what do you mean? Well, like, just starting out, she sets the stage mm-hmm. very well. Mm-hmm. Right in the first line. They were not railway children to begin with. So you know, like, something's coming. Yeah. You know, like, I, I, what, what does she mean? They're Something railway children more. now, but they weren't when the story started. I think she's a very funny writer. Again, mm-hmm. on that, on, on my first page, it mm-hmm. says, Mother did not spend all her time in paying dull calls to dull ladies and sitting dully at home waiting for dull ladies to pay calls to her. That is hilarious. <laughs> and she's, she's funny, but it's not like a silly book. You know what I mean? Is there right, a difference right. between silly and funny? I think there is. Like the book is like not... Like this podcast is silly. <laughs> <laughs> this, <laughs> I think a silly thing, a silly book is designed to just make you laugh. Mm. And and in a book like this, where a writer is kind of very sharp and smart and funny, mm. they can... Maybe witty? So sometimes you're very concerned in the book, yeah. but then at times she makes you laugh. Yeah, so you, the tension gets built up, but then she has a great way of kind of releasing that tension. She does it at the very end of the first chapter as well, which mm. I thought was such a good transition. She says... 
Oh, they're hearing things in their new home. They get to their new home. It's a little dark and they don't know if it's dilapidated and they're hearing noises. Mm. And she says, I wish we hadn't come, uh, Phyllis says. Uh, and the cart man who drops him off is mm-hmm. like, oh, that, those noises are only the rats. And he's only like, the only rats. Only the rats. <laughs> but then the very next line is actually the beginning of chapter two. Yeah. And, his, and the mother says, what fun. I know. It's so good. It's, it's so good. It's a great transition. <clears throat> and it kind of shows like... I mean, these first two chapters, you really get a sense of um, these kids have been put, well, the whole family has been put in a very difficult situation Mm -hmm. and they, um, they try to see on the brightest side of things. A lot of times they try to make the best out of their poor situation. Hmm. Even with that dinner, they make out of canned goods and they set it up all nice and they, you know, they're making jokes to each other, trying to make each other feel better about everything. But yeah, so yeah. so the writing. That's good. I don't know if it surprised me at mm-hmm. how, how how good I, I thought it was, but I was really enjoying it. Yeah, you know, one thing I like about it is it it takes their situation and lets us know that there's something weird going on. It's strange, and the kids are confused, and it doesn't like belittle their confusion or however you mm-hmm. want to put it. Like it shows that the kids are genuinely confused, but it also doesn't. It's still it's still about their adventures, and it's still about their perspective and the way they see the world. And um, kids. One of the things about kids, such as the kids that are listening, is that kids almost always have a great sense of humor, which is why, which is why they like, they like dad jokes until yeah. they get older and then they roll their eyes at their dad. Until they get, and then they get a bit older than when they were older. Right. And then, and then they like them again. again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the book has a good, has I, takes... I was talking to Rowan, my son today about the podcast. He's like, what, what age group do you think it'd be good for? And I was like, well, probably like six to 12 and then... Probably not teenagers, but like 20. 22 to 100. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is a very, yeah, this is like a small age group. It's just not going to be, I'll be into it, right? So, well, there's one other thing about her writing that I really like. Yeah, yeah. On, um, it's my page 10, which okay. is, uh, it's really the second page of the book, though. Mm-hmm. She does some foreshadowing. What's can, foreshadowing mean? Can you explain that? Well, it's got the word four in it. Is that so? It's not the number four. Like it's spelled four. Yeah, so it's spelled F O R E. So if you combine that with shadowing, what's shadowing? What do you think? I mean, shadowing, you get kind of a vague, kind of a, a dim sense of something. Mm. So foreshadowing then is the idea that the author is kind of giving us a little bit of a preview or a hint or an idea that something's coming. Mm-hmm. They're not telling us exactly what it is, but it's preparing us to experience something as a reader. That's foreshadowing. So I think she has a little bit of foreshadowing on on page 10, the second page of my book, Mm -hmm. where she talks about Peter's birthday and he gets a model engine for his birthday. Mm. And after playing with it for a little bit, it explodes. And so you can, I'm not sure if it was foreshadowing when I read it, but I I picked it out because it was engine. It's a big deal. Disaster. And we know it's called the railway children. We know it's called the railway children. (laughs) Yeah. So she plops in these little, these little kind of breadcrumbs, these trails, Mm. these little uh, clues, maybe. And that's something I like to look for when I'm reading. It's like, oh, that might be important. Mm. Yeah. We know there's something coming because right before that, it says the dreadful change came quite suddenly. And right after that, she talks about the engine exploding, but then a few pages, and you're like, is that the dreadful change? But then a few pages later, you find out there's another dreadful change with the dad leaving. Yeah. Um, but But engine Having a disaster coupled together, coupled mm. like a train, coupled <laughs> hey, together. Hey, look at you. Uh, there might be something there. 
one of the great things about reading, there's obviously plot, right? Like you always want to find out what happens to characters and stuff like that. But it's also fun to see how authors put their books together. Like what are the things mm-hmm. that they're kind of putting out there for us to notice? What are the the big moments that are kind of what they call reading between the lines? Things that maybe they don't seem like they're necessarily driving the plot forward or leading to the next thing, but they're some kind of a, a little subtle image or something like that that and then that it's really fun to pick up on those things as you go i like too that she a a good story needs a lot of things but three main things it needs a person a place and a problem Hmm. i was just going to ask you the the characters have to want to overcome something or have something that they that they need or want to accomplish and in literary terms and in writing terms that's called what the character the setting crisis yeah or or Um, some people just call it a problem i think if you're looking for the problem conflict 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 yeah Yeah. so what do you view what she gets right into the conflict pretty pretty fast you're like oh something is you know there's a big problem here yeah and we've got what 200 pages yeah we've got we've read two chapters and there's 14 total so there's going to be what's 14 minus 2 12th (laughs) we've got 12th more chapters coming to come so Let's finish this conversation here because we've got to talk to Andrew Peterson because that guy is really fun. His books are really fun and we got to get it over to that. But in your mind, how do you describe what seems to be the problem or the conflict or the crisis of this book? Uh, uh, they have an uprooting, just like just like a plant or a tree has been pulled up and mm. put somewhere else. Mm. They are disorienta- disoriented. Disorientated. <laughs> disoriented and um, unsure but they have each other. Mm. That's I think that's well summarized. That's good. But but sometimes you say smart things. Sometimes. Yeah. Only when there's a microphone. (laughs) Um, That explains a lot about our friendship. The most important thing to talk about in this chapter, Mm -hmm. Peter has a birthday, right? Mm -hmm. To cheer him up after his engine explodes, his mother says, what do you want to eat? yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up. So glad you brought this, this up. These pigeon in a pie. Abso- Andrew Peterson this. can wait. You are absolutely right about this. He wants pigeon pie. And then when they get to the house, they're all bummed that they're not going to have pigeon they pie. They only have apple pie. I mean, clearly they're not American. It's clearly. But have you ever had pigeon pie, by the way? Because you're not American either now that I think about it. <laughs> I have not had pigeon pie. I don't know anybody who has eaten a pigeon. I don't know anybody who has licked a pigeon. Well, those, <laughs> those are different things, just to be fair. I'm just saying, you know, or, or even smelled a pigeon. F- that, well, everybody smelled pigeons <laughs> if you go to a city. <laughs> okay, so, so the uh, million dollar question, would you eat pigeon pie? Well, Not for a million dollars, but well, a, a million dollar question as in this is... I important. might eat a pigeon pie just for this podcast. Would you eat it? So here's the thing. It's clearly like something that's special to these people. So this time in England, pigeon pie must've been some kind of a deli- mm. delicacy or something that was like very special. And I just looked at that hard to catch. I had never thought about that part. Well, flamingos are probably hard to catch too. You know, I mean, flamingo pie doesn't seem to be a thing. I guess there's probably not as many flamingos. That's true. This probably pretty expensive, yeah. but I did just look it up online. And one of the big food websites has a, as a ceremonial pigeon pie that looks more like it's like a puff pastry type thing that's got looks like a cake kind of but then there's other ones that look like chicken pot pie mm-hmm. and it's got all five star reviews so 
Okay. It's definitely so it might a, be good. It's definitely a big deal in Europe. Okay, so here's here's uh, ki- every kid's assignment now is to go catch a pigeon. Wait, David's what are you saying? Don't don't say what I'm about to say. Okay. All right. Well, okay. He's, he's ask not your a, mom. He's, he's shaking his ask head. Ask your mom if you can catch a pigeon. Let's just say for the record, don't go catching pigeons. <laughs> yeah. For legal reasons. For legal reasons, we have to say, don't catch don't, pigeons. Don't eat a pigeon. Unless the pigeon comes to you. Unless... I, don't eat the pigeon. <laughs> okay, don't eat the pigeon then. That's the rule of this show. You cannot eat pigeons. What if someone goes to England... And goes to a restaurant where they're serving a real pigeon pie, not caught from someone's power lines. They then they say, David and Graham said, I cannot eat this. I think that's fair. No, then they in should that eat case it. you get shepherd's pie. No, then they should eat it. Okay, if it's All at right. the restaurant, you eat it. So if your little brother makes it, don't eat it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's a good rule of thumb for most things. Okay, so this has been the first two chapters of the railway children. We are really looking forward to discussing this. And if you want to give your feedback on this book or uh, just let us know what you're thinking of it, you can always email that's podcasts at goldberrybooks.com. So I gave a little signal for him to finish that and we just weren't communicating. Well, we'll get better at this. I was staring off into space. So I was thinking about that pigeon, <laughs> that carrier pigeon. That they thinking, could send us. That's right. You could send us a carrier pigeon that's right. about your Don't opinions pigeon. of pigeon pie. Don't eat the pigeon. Send the pigeon. Send a, That's right. Send a note tied to the pigeon's legs. Okay. So I feel like it's time to move on to Andrew Peterson. Well, we are about to talk to the one and only Andrew Peterson. He is a very successful musician, uh, author of books for both children and for adults. Um, We have both gotten to know him a very little bit, but we enjoyed this conversation a very big bit. And you've listened to his music for years, right? 20 years? 20 20, years, yeah. 25 years? So he's a a singer-songwriter, and he has released more than 10 records over the past 20 years. Should we say 10th records over 20th years? Yes. Um, He has a reputation for songs that connect with his listeners in ways that are powerful, poetic, and intimate. All three of those are good words for a musician, I feel like. As an author, his books include, of course, the four volumes of The Wingfeather Saga, uh, and then there's also a couple of books that go along with that called The Wingfeather Tales, which he has contributed to and is the editor of. Have you read The Wingfeather Saga? I've read the first book of The Wingfeather Saga, and my whole family has read, I think, all of them? Almost all of them. That's the one that my wife reads the most with them. Mm. In fact, your children were in our bookstore this week buying the fourth one. So they're getting ready to finish it, I think. Okay. He also has a memoir about his uh, you know, creative life, his writing life. It's called Adorning the Dark. It was released in 2019. And some of your parents may have listened to that. That's a pretty cool book as well. He's got lots of other things up his sleeve. So we enjoyed this conversation uh, about how he writes and how he comes up with the ideas and his books. And with that, we hope you enjoyed this conversation. All right. Well, here on the, uh, the second episode of the Withy Wendell podcast, we have one of the world's greatest. Oh, he's shaking his head. We have one of the <laughs> world's writerist writers. Uh, this is Mr. Andrew Peterson is here on the, the podcast with us. I know him primarily as a musician. I've got to be honest. I knew, I knew you as a musician yeah that's same but many many years ago so long ago it's because we're getting old right yeah which which how old is he if we're getting old ancient i don't think we're supposed to ask i don't right? oh <laughs> sorry, yeah. i won't ask anyway mr andrew peterson thank you for joining the podcast and coming and answering some questions and hanging out with us for a bit 
Absolutely. It's good to be with you guys. I'm 46. Yeah, I feel uncomfortable now. <laughs> which, which makes you guys what? Like, I, I, like I, I'm trying to imagine how old that would make you. Eighth grade? <laughs> yeah, that's about right. Yes, yes, wow. eighth grade. <laughs> now, Andrew, um, you're living just outside Nashville. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. Yep. I, I was doing a little bit of kind of a deep dive on your uh, Wikipedia um, <laughs> totally accurate. So, so I can't, I, I found that information, but I, I thought you were in Florida, um, oh. but I imagine you were there at some point, but it yes. was interesting to me <laughs> to learn that you were born in Illinois. Yeah. Monticello. Monticello is how we said it. I'm going to yeah. say Monticello. Okay. It's very, up, very uppity of you. <laughs> so, so while you were, while you were in Monticello, Monticello, was was Thomas Jefferson around? I mean, did you see? <laughs> well, well, Tom, he's but, old, but not that old. Yeah, I was going to say like the like Monticello, Illinois, is not the same as Monticello, I think Virginia, right? Isn't that where? Yeah. Well, I don't. Um, I don't so, think is it legal for towns to have the same name? I don't think that's possible. I, I don't think it is now, but it probably was back when Abe Lincoln was alive. So uh, Monticello was this little wonderful little farming picture perfect farm town that had a train stop and it was kind of famous because when Lincoln was a lawyer he used to come through there all the time and so mm. I was like this little wide-eyed seven-year-old kid who loved Abe Lincoln and played in the corn as a kid and then we moved to Florida and then I grew up spent the rest of my childhood there and then we moved to Nashville when I was just after college. And so we've been here. I've actually been in Nashville longer than Illinois or Florida. So I feel like this is, this is more home than either of those places at this point. Did you move to Nashville because of the music? I mentioned at the top that that's how we both knew you because when we were kids, your kids books weren't out yet. Yeah. 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 I was in college uh, at a little Bible college in Florida. And that was when I started, I mean, I'd played music in high school and stuff, but during Bible colleges, when I started, you know, doing solo concerts and writing my own songs and I just playing in bands. Um, Mm -hmm. And so by the time I graduated college, I had released my, my first indie record, which back in the mid nineties, it was a little harder to make an indie record than it mm. is now. You know, the, the garage man didn't exist. You couldn't, yeah. you know, there was no Spotify or iTunes. So I had to actually take a Greyhound to Nashville with wow. all of my savings and spend a weekend making this really bad record that didn't have pro tools. Right. So there was no <laughs> auto tune. There's no like uh, way to streamline it. And then, uh, mm. but it was, it was pretty bad, but also good enough to indicate to me that it was like, with the you know encouragement of some mentors that we should move to Nashville and see how this goes. Well, I've got a question for about your music for later on and how that might tie into your storytelling. But we have a bunch of questions from yeah. your readers that we'd like to we'd like to get to, and one of them actually has to do with uh, where you live. Yeah, because Caleb he says that he heard that you live on some beautiful land in the woods near Nashville. Now. I don't know if we really want to get into how Caleb knows that because it's a little, little creepy, to be honest. Wikipedia. Caleb knows. Wikipedia, mean, it's, okay. <laughs> it's a good guess that the land would be wooded and beautiful. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. So he says that he lives in nearby Spring Hill. And oh, yeah. so he wants to know what the coolest animal is that you have ever seen on your property. Oh, that's a good question. The coolest animal that I've ever seen. So there is a an endangered species of crawfish, crayfish, crawdad, whatever you want to call it, uh, that lives mm. exclusively in Mill Creek, which is the creek that kind of winds through the valley that we're in. 
And I just wow. saw him in the woods uh, this winter, actually. It was 27 degrees outside. And I looked down in this little tiny, tiny little creek on our property. And there there was this like three-inch long crawdad. That was pretty cool. I see salamanders sometimes. Uh, but I think the coolest thing um, would be either the bobcat that has occasionally wandered through the woods. Or uh, my wife was once driving down the street in front of our house and a wild boar, complete with tusks, was just trotting along the street. Past the mailboxes. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, it's it's rare, but it happens. That's impressive. What'd you do? What'd she do? Uh, she slammed on the brakes and just kind of gasped because she couldn't believe this hairy pig was... Giant teeth. Yeah, I've heard it's recommended to leave them alone. Well, she had her spear with her, so she went oh, ahead. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, okay. She slayed it, and we had it for dinner. So your books are really autobiographical, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually they are. It was, it's funny the the, uh, I grew up in, like I said, mostly in Florida and, um, there were lots of cattle, you know, cows around and, uh, my mom grew up on a dairy farm and the toothy cows in my book were partly inspired by the fact that mm. I was around cows enough to know that they're evil. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so, so there was that, but then also Florida, which is where literally there are giant lizards that live in the swamps that can eat you. I mean, yeah, this, yeah. this happens in the world where we live. And so, uh, so yeah, it was pretty autobiographical. Hmm. Yeah. Speaking of kind of the land and topography, um, Agnes, who's age seven asks, uh, or she's curious where you got the ideas for all the land names in your stories. Well, on a broad level, it was just like, you know, the, the story started with a map. And I think mm. I made a lot of false starts before I realized that I didn't know enough about the world to really write the story. And mm. so I got out my sketchbook and I drew a map. And, and at that point, it's like, I think I was about 28 or 30 when I, when I was doing that. And um, maybe even younger, I can't remember. And, uh, and I just felt like I was 12. I felt like a little kid. And so that's where it came from. It was just me going, what if this was called this? What if it was called Scree? What if it was called Ding? And then as the books went on and I needed more detail, my kids actually supplied a lot of the funny names for the towns and the lands and stuff. Hmm. That's awesome. So you mentioned your sketchbook, which brings us to our weekly assignment that we have for our guests. Oh boy. You thought you were going to get away with not having to do this one. Well, I forgot. (laughs) Well, Graham, you're the keeper of the... The assignments. Yes. We need to come up with a better term for the for him, no, the I keeper like, of the assignments. I like that. That's fine. So what what is what is Andrew going to be uh, drawing for us? This, so Andrew, um, with your pen and paper today, you're going to be drawing or doodling. You know, no pressure. <laughs> yeah, let's not let's not make, let's not say it's a drawing. That's a, like yeah, that's, that's got a standard. <laughs> this is going to be a monster. Okay, any type of monster you want, silly monster. What prickly know, monster prickly monster, but he's got a splinter. That's his one ailment. That's his one distress. A monster with a splinter. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. That's actually difficult. Um, <laughs> or, okay. or you can draw a smiley face. What if there's a, <laughs> what if there is a splinter that has a monster? Yeah. And to be clear, this is, this is a wooden splinter, not like splinter from Ninja Turtle splinter. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Okay. So, I, I want to eliminate confusion. So Andrew's going to work on that while we ask him questions and we make him think and draw at the same time. Are you good at multitasking? Oh uh, yeah, I'm decent at it. Oh, so this should be a brace for you then. I don't know what you're worried about. Yeah, yeah. Easy. 
Easy. Drying splinters is easy. <laughs> it is a very specific, very small thing, actually. Now that well, you mention it's, it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They, they have very specific ideas. So. That's true. This is true. So you were just talking about how you felt like you were 12 years old and your children you know, helped with some of the names and things like that and how you started with a map. Yeah. How did, is that, from there, where did the idea to write the Wingfeather Saga come from? And of course, now you've got four books and you've got what you're about to release, a second book of stories, right? So this world, you know, you've got this extended universe of Wingfeather. And how did it go from maps to what you have now? Well, uh, it's, so the map was there to, to ground the story. So I had this vague sense of like what the story was supposed to be. Um, but it's kind of like, um, if you want to grow tomatoes in your backyard, you have to put them somewhere, you know, you can't just plant them in your yard. You have to actually do something with the soil and weed the garden and ideally create a raised bed, you know? And, and so a lot of people, when they start to write a story, I think they think I'm just going to go to Lowe's and I'm going to buy a tomato plant and I'm going to stick it in my yard. And we all know that isn't going to work. It's going to shrivel and die. So you need to prepare Mm -hmm. the soil first. And so that's the mapping and the, the world building. Like I had like so many people, when you're a kid, you know, you have an idea for a story and you're like, I'm going to write a whole book. And you sit down and, you know, you get 10 pages in and you're stuck and yeah. you never finish. Most of us know what that feels like. And so this time I was like, I was determined. I, I have to finish it this time. I can't just talk about it. And so when I realized that the problem was part it's because it's fantasy, it was world building and history and all that kind of stuff. So I, when I, I drew the map and then I started naming stuff and then all of a sudden I could picture where Janner Igaby lived and, mm. and then... Uh, you know, when I came up with Nag the Nameless, I thought it was a pretty funny name. Um, <laughs> and then I was like, why would somebody be named Nag the Nameless? And so I had to then write a whole backstory of why somebody would end up with that name. And and so that's where the story comes from. So you start with all of those details and somehow out of that soil, the tomato plant grows. Yeah. And uh, and that ends up being the story. And, and you know, that's the the hard part is is uh, is pushing the story across the finish line. It took me 10 years. Um and so, uh, just to get the first book done five years for the first book. Okay. Okay. And it took about five more years. Yeah. So when you're doing all that early invention stuff, you know, you're thinking about these characters and you're coming up with those names and you're writing that backstory. Are you just keeping a journal? Are you doing this on your computer? I know a lot of kids and a lot of aspiring writers are constantly like working through the notion of process, right? Even 12 year old writers wonder yeah. about how do the writers that I love go about telling their stories? So what's that look like for you? So I use my computer and Word, Microsoft Word, you know, um, and the way that it worked for me was I would, uh, I have one master document that I write it all in and I would usually write, uh, until I got stuck. Uh, and, and then I, when I would get stuck, I would then go back and write chapter synopses. So I write chapter one and then a couple sentences. This is what happens. Chapter two. Mm-hmm then this happens chapter three, then this happens very loosely. And, you know, you'd write, uh, you know, five, six, maybe 10 little chapter synopses. And then when you sit down to write, you have something to go on, you know, mm. basically I'm yeah. just telling my readers, I'm fleshing out what I said in the thing. And inevitably, but like if I had mapped out 10 chapters, by the time I'd written three chapters, it was completely different. 
and, and the things, different things happened than I thought. So I would abandon the others and then I'd get stuck and I'd outline a few more chapters. And if you do it like that and you, you commit to writing a certain amount of words every day, for me, it was 2000 words a day. Then mm. that's how you write a book. How many pages is 2000 words? Um, I don't know how many pages 2000 words in Microsoft. It just kind of, there's a word count thing. So you didn't sit there Probably. and count every Every word on your screen. <laughs> no, no, no. That's good to clarify, though, for the young people. <laughs> like the, the, if you're writing on a computer, chances are at the bottom of your document, it'll tell you how many words there are. Um, and I know that like my first book was about 280-ish pages long, and it was about, I want to say, 80,000 words. Okay. Do so. you recommend that that's what kid, you know, young writers do? Like if you're a 10-year-old and you were talking to them, and would you say, you should set a goal to write 200 words a day or to write a yeah. page or... Yeah, I think that's a great way to do it. And one of the thing bits of advice I give young young writers is, um, you know, that big grand epic that you have in your mind that you're planning to tell. I, I, I like this story. I was sitting at the coffee house when I was working on book two, and this family came in and they recognized me, and so they came over and they're like, "We're reading your first book right now." And and one of the kids was like eight years old, and the mom was like, uh, um, "He's working on a book, and I love it." The title of the book was Space Jet Five Thousand. <laughs> which is fantastic. And then the, the, <laughs> tell me about the, the bad guy whose name was Mr. Brains, which is also fantastic. Uh, and he told me this whole elaborate plot. And I was like, how much have you written? And he was like, well, I'm on page 10. And I was kind of like, my advice is make the good guys beat the bad guys in by page 20. Like, don't, don't try to write the epic. Don't try to write some giant story when you're a kid. Uh, yeah. Write a 20 page story. You don't need all that space because it's better to like write a short story that has an arc and an ending that you can then edit and then you print it out and you can share it with your friends and you can illustrate it. That's mm. the real fun part of writing. Mm. And a lot of people never get to the fun part because the book never gets finished. Mm. So shorten what your goal is, write a bunch of little short stories and maybe make them a little longer as you get older. Um, yeah. Everybody wants to be talking, but you can't even talking didn't start there. Totally. And it took him forever to write those books, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, so, so yeah, I think that starting small, like may, may, maybe a good goal would be to don't let the book be any more pages than, than the years you are alive. Hmm. I like that rule. That's a good, that's a good recommendation. Yeah. Until you, until you graduate. <laughs> <laughs> so Andrew, you've created so many characters, um, and so many beloved characters. Uh, we have a question from Noah and Hannah. It looks like a, a brother-sister team here. Um, who is your favorite character in the series? And also, which character was the most fun to create? Could be the uh, same answer. Might uh, not be. I would say my favorite character would change depending on what I had for breakfast. So it just like, there's no consistent one. I mean, I loved Pete the Sock Man because for me, some of the most enjoyable parts of the book were like the reveals that I knew were coming that, that it took me four books to get to, you know? And so, yeah. yeah, you know, like getting to the end of book one and the big reveal about Pete the Sock Man was really fun. And so getting, getting in his head and, and, uh, revealing that, um, I, one, I think my, like the dark horse favorite character is Sarah Cobbler, uh, who is, Shows up in a footnote in book one and then uh, maybe a footnote. Maybe she may have been named in the chapter, but she wouldn't leave me alone. And so by the time book two came around, she actually was fleshed out as a real character. And I just loved her. I loved writing her part of the story. You said that 
it depended on what you were eating for breakfast. What what were you eating for breakfast on the days that the sock man was your favorite character? <laughs> well, I can t- I can tell you that my my typical breakfast I have chickens, and so I go and I get eggs from the chicken coop. Hmm. I fry them up and have an egg sandwich um, that is, that is magnificent. So those I would well guess now I'm hungry. Thanks a yeah, lot. My most consistent breakfast, which is probably aligned closely with Pete the sock man. <laughs> so so. Y- I think this this ties in nicely with a question that Aiden sent in, and he wants to know if you've ever found yourself surprised by things that happen in your books. And he's curious yeah. about um, maybe there's things that you thought would go one way, but then as you're writing along, they go a different direction. This is a great question. And then he finishes the question by saying, can authors be surprised by their own stories? Uh, I think definitely yes. And in fact, I would say that the best the best parts of, of my book. And I would guess a lot of authors books are the parts that they're surprised by. Mm. Um, it's, it's like, uh, I'm a Christian. And so the, like the, the sense that the creative process is something that, um, is very mysterious. And I think God is involved in it in, in a very real way means Mm. that like, as a creative person, you, you have to allow the spirit to guide you in the process. You kind of, You may have an idea of what your story is supposed to be, but the story may be smarter than you. Mm. And so (laughs) leaving room for the story to change is really important. And so, yeah, there are some huge moments. Um, uh, The one that I think of is in The Monster in the Hollows. For those of you who have read the book, um, there's a scene early on in the book where Janner and Tink and Lily are in Chimney Hill and look out the window. There's a cloven, which is this monster that's like out of the forest and it's kind of lurching across the backyard. And, uh, and I remember coming home from the, the coffee house the day where I was writing and flopped into my chair. And my wife asked me what was wrong. And I was like, I just don't know what this story even is. And uh, I don't know why there's a monster in the back lawn of the, the house. You know, I didn't understand any of it. And then all of a sudden it hit me who the monster was. And I legit had no concept of who it was. And all of a sudden I saw that monster's whole story un- unspool in my mind mm. and it mm. felt like it was always meant to be and uh, couldn't be any other way. And I saw the end of the story all in like five seconds. And I started crying because I was like, <laughs> Oh, I know where this is going. And it broke my heart. And, uh, and so those moments are like, you know, you're entering into this great mystery when you're writing a story and, mm. and you leave room for, you know, the story to surprise you, then, then chances are the readers will also be surprised. Is it hard to let go? Not for me. I like it. I I enjoy, um, I mean the the times when letting go means you have to do a bunch of work to change things that that's a pain, but yeah, right. Yeah. The work is difficult. You know, if, if your goal is, is to write the best story you can write, then any chance to, to make it better, you'll jump at, you know? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So here's a, here's an, Interesting question. I'm a little confused by it. So maybe you guys can help me out. Uh, it says great books. And then it's got this kind of line with a period after it. Uh huh. You see that? Do you mean an exclamation mark? I thought the question mark looked kind of funny. That's what, okay. Oh, but, so, it's, so, so, it's, so it's not a question then. It's great books. We asked for questions and the, he just made an exclamation. Well, Dina says great books. So take that. Would you like to respond to her comment that your books are great? Ah, thank you. That's all I got. Well said. And he used an exclamation mark too. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I seem I to, it. I feel like I've read somewhere that you're not a big exclamation mark person in writing. Man, I think they get way overused. In fact, when I, uh, 
work on, uh, I hardly ever use them in, in, in book. I mean, you got to use them in texts now because people will think you're being mean if you don't. <laughs> right. Uh, but in, in prose, <laughs> you should just almost never use an exclamation mark. Uh, nor should you use uh, adverbs. That's a crazy thought, but it's true. Like after, after every first draft, I go through and I do a find and replace and you type L-Y and I go through every adverb in the thing. And almost every time you can delete the adverb and the sentence is better. It's just like a crutch. Yeah. In the yeah. process. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a surefire way that the, to, to detect lazy writing. Cause if you need an adverb, uh, sometimes they work, sometimes they're important, but like, uh, generally you can replace, remove the adverb and come up with a stronger verb and it, 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 uh, improves the writing drastically. Hmm. How's the illustration going by the way? Oh, it's going to blow your minds. <laughs> okay. Here's yeah. a spe- speaking of blowing your mind. Yeah, this, this question, this question is very important. Devin wants to know Cheetos or Doritos. Doritos all day. Do you have a just original Doritos, Cool Ranch? Nacho I, I, I typically go original. Hmm. Yeah, I would say original. You're, gra- you're um, grabbing the blue bag in the supermarket. Original is the red bag. Cool Ranch. I think blue, Cool Ranch. Yeah, Blue's Cool Ranch. What's original? Red. Red. Nacho cheese? Yep. Yeah, it's just the regular. Yeah. I've never heard it called original. Well, it's the OG. We're going to have to go to the store after this and we're going to have to have a lesson in Dorito colors. So, Andrew, Andrew, you're not messing with the uh, spicy ones, the ghost pepper, uh, jalapeno. No, no, that's that's a little much for me. So what are some of the books that inspire you? You know, when you're a kid, what made you want to be a writer and be an artist and, and just, yeah. you know, awaken your imagination? I loved, I mean, I loved the Narnia books when I was a kid, uh, but I didn't love them half as much then as I do now that I'm a grown up. Hmm. Um, reading the Narnia books to my kids was a more enjoyable experience than it was when I was a kid. <laughs> so if you're a kid out there and you feel like you're supposed to love Narnia, but you don't have some wait, kids, wait until you have kids, read them to your kids and it'll, it'll mess you up in the best way. <laughs> But I loved the uh, Lloyd Alexander um, series, the the um, the Chronicles of Prydain, which was the Black Cauldron and the High King and the Castle of Lear. Uh, there was it was a it's a five book series that I just absolutely loved when I was a kid. Um, I loved the Black Stallion books when I was a kid. Mm. I liked the Hardy Boys. Um, there was a, I loved Shel Silverstein, like the where the sidewalk ends. I I still mm-hmm. have my copy, um, and I still think it's delightful. Um, so yeah, I, I wasn't a super sophisticated reader when I was a kid. I just gravitated to um, detective stories and ghost stories and anything that had a sword or a dragon in it. I was way into, um, and you know that that that's kind of it's fun to read that stuff. And then when you get older, you realize that not very much of it is actually very good. Which is why <laughs> books like the Lord of the Rings are such miracles, you know, that when, having to have a fantasy that is that is a written by a Christian um, that is edifying, you know, but is also just astonishingly well written, like from, on a prose level. Those are far few and far between. And so, mm. yeah, it, it was eventually the Lord of the Rings became my favorite book. Mm. And still today. I would say so. Yeah, I think I've read that book more than any other book. What what's the competition for it now that you're an adult in terms of your you know the books you love the most and read the most? Yeah, I would say there's a book called Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry that is that is mm-hmm. probably possibly one of my favorites. Um, a Severe Mercy, 
um, the great divorce by CS Lewis. Uh, Oh man, there's so many good books. I'm in my office right now. Um, do you have like a prized possession book? I have quite a few of those. (laughs) (laughs) I have, uh, I mean, I have, yeah, I'm kind of a book nerd, so I don't know if you can see there's my, there's my bookshelf. Mm. Um, and well, if you want to list off your prize possessions and we'll, we'll, what do you think? We'll give them away. Yeah. yeah. We'll do a raffle. We could something. do a raffle or something like that. Yeah. I could draw a picture of a monster in the inside flap. Uh, a monster <laughs> with, with a splinter. splinter. Yeah, yeah. 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 Easy. Yeah. <laughs> Remarks. Yeah. He, he's drawing a monster with a splinter on the inside of a first edition of the Lord of the Rings that happens to be signed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We have a couple more questions for you and then, and then we'll let you go. In regards, Andrew, to the um, audiobooks, um, and I guess, and I guess about the covers of your books as well. How mm-hmm. much influence, uh, or I wouldn't say control, but um, yeah, how much influence does the author have over the narrator, the illustrator, things like that? This was by unnamed kid. Unnamed kid. What's up, unna- unnamed kid? Kid the nameless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's different depending on the the publishing deal. Like sometimes. An author, uh, you know, signs the deal, turns in the book, and that's kind of like the, the end of their real involvement in the thing, because a lot of publishers don't really like the meddling of an author when it comes to the marketing and the artwork and all that kind of stuff. But um, I fought for that stuff because it's so important to me. Like the, I love illustration and art and all that kind of stuff, and uh, and so I I kind of insisted that I have some say in it, and so. Uh, yeah, getting to hire Joe Sutphin, who's just incredible to illustrate the new editions, and then Nicholas Cole, who did the covers. They're just two of my very favorite artists in the world. And they had a real, so the, both of them know the Wing Feather Saga really well. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, the publisher is just calling some random guy and saying, hey, draw this thing. Yeah. Uh, they, they really knew the story well and know, know me well. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, so I have quite a bit of say, but like, I, all, I'm, I didn't like, I don't, you know, tell them what to draw. Like the idea mm. is that if you have people you trust, you just let them do their thing. And mm. I trust these guys. And so, um, and then with the, the audio book, I think I had read a few audio books over the years, like books by other people. And so when it came time to do these, I, I, I think they felt safe enough to let me read it. Um, plus I, I got the satisfaction of finally pronouncing the words correctly. The guy that read the first two books originally <laughs> He he has a great voice, but he nobody ever checked with me about how to pronounce things. And so when those came out, I was just like, no, no, no. You could email me. And so it felt really good to reread them and get the pronunciation. Mm. So, mm. Well, okay. Last question. This one, at least for me, and then we'll Graham, if you have another one. So we mentioned at the top of this episode that for Graham and I, we knew you as a songwriter and a musician first and saw some of your shows when we were in college and so forth. So that's what, 15 years ago now or something like that. But how has that career as a songwriter and a musician influenced your career and your work as a storyteller, if at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely has. Um, I, uh, hmm, how do I get into this? So I would say that the, um, I happen to think that like the, the Bible is uh, the greatest epic, you know, and it's it's like the most satisfying story 
cast the most beautiful vision of, of the ending that is coming. And, uh, and so having grown up in the church and then grown up, then ended up in Bible college and studying, I'm not a scholar by any stretch, but, but kind of like have been shaped by a lot of the ideas there and just the Mm. bare storytelling genius of, of God. And so I, I think, uh, that was, that was a big part of it. So then what got me into songwriting was the wanting to tell that story, right. Wanting to tell that truth beautifully. And so I, I love the way that stories like on a micro level can, you know, there's this golden ratio that, that plays itself out that like, you know, if you tell a little story really well, it's also a reflection of the big story. And uh, if you, if I tell my story really well, chances are, it's going to be a lot like your story um, in in kind of the regions of the heart. And so, Hmm. so being a songwriter uh, was basically like being a student of how stories work for years. Hmm. Um, And uh, not just story, but also like the, like the art and, and kind of practicing um, that freedom that we were talking, like that open handedness of when you're creating something of like, I have a thing that I want to make, but I'm also like leaving the options open for it to grow into something else. All of those things were things that eventually applied to the book writing thing too. So yeah, I think it, it, it affected it a lot. Mm. Anything else, Graham? So Andrew, what's, uh, what's next for you? Do you have an, an album brewing? Do you have books you're working on or is everything kind of top secret right now? Well, the big thing right now is that I'm working on this, uh, sketch of a monster with a splinter. Mm. How's that going by the way? Oh man, it's like I told you, it's going to blow your mind. I'm just telling you. I'm so excited to see this. Yeah, one. Is there pre-orders for this? Is yeah. There, when's the release date? Um, I'm is there going to be an audio book? <laughs> uh, I am finishing up a nonfiction book right now. Uh, I have another one called Adorning the Dark that came out 18 months ago or something like that. And uh, it's, it was a memoir about the creative process. And so now that I'm home, I was on tour when COVID hit and came home about a year ago this week and couldn't tour for a year, which meant I was here, which I was really glad for to be home for a change. Um, and so I'm spent that year working on a new book. So I have a, a book called the God of the garden that's coming out soon. And it's about, uh, it's called the God of the garden thoughts on creation, culture, and the coming kingdom. And so it's basically it, what ignited the book was my love of trees. And I, hmm. I, do, I love trees and started thinking about uh, the fact that the, some of the most significant moments in my life happened in the presence of very specific trees. And so trees became like the framework hmm. for getting into getting into all those ideas. That sounds awesome. I know. I can't wait to read that. Uh, well, so is, what- there a, is there a release date? For that yet, or is it still? Uh, it's, I'm still finishing up the third draft right now. And so hopefully, I'm pretty sure they're planning on releasing it this fall. See, kids, he's on a third draft. Yeah. How many total drafts will you be working on, you think? Uh, I'm hoping that this is the pretty much the last draft. Um, it's as good as you can do, huh? Yeah, man. I, <laughs> with the first Wing Feather book, um, there, it really is true. It's like you reach a point where you're like, well, I, I, I ain't got any more, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so, but the first Wing Feather book, I think I went through like eight drafts of it. Mm. Um, and it, it, it was hard, but like every time you'd send it to an editor and she would send it back all marked up with problems, it's painful. And then about five minutes later, you're like, give me more problems because yeah. it becomes very clear that the book is getting better. Yeah. 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 Editing, editing is a crucial part of the, do you, do you find that eventually the editing goes from painful to fun? Yes. Quickly. Okay. 
Yeah, once you get over yourself and your feelings, it ends up being really fun. Yeah, it becomes about the book or the work. Yeah, or the reader, I guess, maybe. All right, well, we have a little game we're going to play here at the end. It's our weekly installment of Withy Wendell Balderdash, which I'm discovering is quite a mouthful to say. Uh, Graham, have you, 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 put, you put fuel in the machine this week, right? I put fuel in the machine, yes. You promise. I got it. I got it all week, sorted. I remember. Last week, it didn't work. I know. And we had to wait around. Okay, well, so what we're going to do, Andrew, you know how Balderdash works, right? Yeah, yeah. I love it. We are going to give you a word, and the three of us are all going to try to come up with what we think the definition for that word is. Are you ready for what this week's word is? Because Graham's going to hit the button. You got to hit the button on the machine. It's not. It's not. You told me that you put you put the stuff in it. You I did. put the fuel. I put it in. He's a busy man. He's got to go work on a book. And you for well, what's that? Did you put did you put the paper in? Oh, uh can you put some paper in? Well, I put a burrito in there already. <laughs> a bur- I thought it could print on anything, you know. It's 2021. All right, paper. Andrew, I apologize. <laughs> we, we are going to get our act together sometime before the end of season one, we hope. But we actually really do need paper, don't we? So the word for this week's episode is, are you ready for it? Yeah. Pandiculation. Pandiculation. P-A-N-D-I-C-U-L-A-T-I-O-N. Pandiculation. You have one minute. Well, our listeners, for our listeners, it's going to be like 10 seconds. But you have a minute to come up with a definition for pandiculation. I just have to say, I've never worked so hard in a podcast before. Just between the drawing and now I've got to stop the drawing and come over here and come up with a definition. Okay. All right, everybody, we are back and we have written down what we believe the, the definition to pandiculation is. We're going to have Graham go first and then I'll go and then we'll have our special guest go third once he's been able to hear what a genius Graham and I are. So I'm, Graham, I feel very confident. You're very confident in your definition for pandiculation. Pandiculation. Look how earnestly he's drawing right now. He's either or maybe still writing. That's yeah. true. <laughs> this is the drawing part. Pandiculation. Is when all your bones turn into jelly. And it's usually after somebody uses the pandiculo charm on you. And you, you, you have pandiculation after that. So you're able to move your arms, you know, 360 degrees. Oh, it's a good sort of jelly. It's like f- extreme flexibility. Uh, I mean. So it's a good charm or a bad charm? Is it a curse? or? <laughs> I mean, it depends on your personality. No, I suppose, that's yeah. Okay, that's fair. All right. I don't know if that's going to be right because I think I'm right. Okay. And I Let's believe see. that the definition to pendiculation is that it's, it's the feeling you get when you edited out the best sentence you ever wrote, but your editor hated it. Mm. That's pendiculation. It's that, it's, that, it's that feeling of killing your darlings, as the, as the writers say. You, don't, is, you seem skeptical. Not, uh, yeah, I mean... Is it too topical? I don't, I don't get it. I don't... You're just wrong, but you know. know. Well, Andrew. You. What do you think the definition to pendiculation is? Pendiculation, to communicate broadly with appeal and comprehension across many cultures, including but not limited to alien worlds, alternate universes, and comic conventions. I gotta admit, that's pretty good. In two episodes, 
That might be the best definition we've had yet. <laughs> what an honor. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to throw S.T. Smith under the bus or anything, but, you know, maybe we should. Though. <laughs> Pandiculation, huh? Can you read that again? Pandiculation, to communicate broadly with appeal and comprehension across many cultures. I don't know if that's the real definition, but I think we should just end it there and say that it is and move on. Uh, the real definition is, and, and Logan, our editor, we need a little sound effect here for the big reveal. Thank you for the sound effect. Paniculation is what happens when you wake up in the morning and stretch. <laughs> really? As you stretch, your muscles might go rigid for a short time, which can sometimes be uncomfortable. Huh. It can also describe the wonderful or terrible combination of being extremely sleepy and then stretching and yawning at the same time. Oh, yeah. What, so, a, what a good feeling. <laughs> Unless you have to get up. I would, that almost feels made up, but according to this, it's, it's true. So, so it's so. that Saturday morning, stretch, yawn, moving, articulating your limbs around us. I, I was close. Makes me feel like, makes me think of a cat. Like a cat oh, that's been sleeping, that's like a cartoon cat, you know, and then like its spine is in a weird shape, like a, almost like a triangle and it's, you know, its claws come out and stuff like that. That's what it makes me think of. I got to say, though, I kind of like Andrew's definition better than the real one. Yeah. Not that I, we need to, you know, throw under the bus whoever came up with the real definition, but Andrew, thank you so much. How's the drawing going? It's, it's pretty good. I, uh, Can we see know, it? Or I don't think it's pretty good, actually. It's, it's horrible, but... It's, um, <laughs> You one you're going to post on your Instagram page. Right, you want me to show you on here? Yeah, show us on here and then we'll show everybody. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that is amazing. Oh, um. <laughs> I had some preloaded comment about, about, uh, about how bad it was, but I can't say it. because That's it's, terrifying and amazing. Great. Wow. <laughs> you know, it looks a lot like you when you have a splinter. Yeah. True, yeah. I it's walk around like that all day. I, yeah. I let everybody know whenever I get a splinter. <laughs> That's <laughs> fabulous. Can you can you send us that so we can can we I share it with our with our listeners who will be absolutely ecstatic when they see that? <laughs> well, this has been really fun. We it's been a pleasure and an honor to get to talk to you and share some questions with our listeners. We have um, I know our kids love your books. We've we've heard from so many kids here in the bookstore who just come in. They love your books. They read the first one. And then like two days later, they're here for the second one. And then two days later, so in a week, they've read all four. So thank you for writing those. And thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys having me. It's been fun. The last thing we like to do is what, Graham? I can't remember. <laughs> the last thing we like to do is have you challenge oh, somebody yeah. else to come on oh, and yeah. talk to us and, and hear questions from their readers. Yes, absolutely. I challenge Jennifer Trafton, author of mm. Henry and the Chalk Dragon and wonderful uh, books and the, the rise and fall of Mount Majestic among others um, to come on. I actually just read, so we're about to release the wing feather tales, which is like mm -hmm. a fifth collection of short stories by a bunch of different yeah. authors. They're all in the wing feather world. And one of the stories is hers. And I got to do the audiobook for it this weekend. And so I, I was just like, laughing out loud in the studio because of her writing. And it's just delightful. She, she tells a story from the point of view of Oliver Pembroke, who wrote Pembrokeshirpedia. And, uh, and she is just a genius. So I challenge her to be on the show. Well, I for one hope that she takes you up on that because I love her books and would love a chance to talk to her as well. So thank you. And, uh, you know, thanks for the challenge. Thanks for, thanks for putting in some work on this episode. Thanks, yeah, for, man. thanks for your efforts. I'm going to take a nap now. <laughs> Sounds good. So are we. 
I've got a couch here in the bookstore, so I'm sure no one will mind if we take a nap in the kids' room. All right. Thank you so much. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop the recording now. I think we can think we can quit. All right. Well, that was our conversation with Andrew Peterson. Unique guy, I'd say. I, yeah, wonderful conversation. Thanks so much to Andrew for coming on, and we hope you'll check out his books if you have never read any of the Wing Feather Saga titles. It makes me want to read them all. Yeah. I mean, what are you waiting for? That's that's the real question. I'm just too busy doing this. You know, speaking of questions, last week, we put out a riddle. We put a riddle out into the universe, and there are people out there who sent in answers. And I think it's time to, to find out what the winners were. Can you give us a quick recap of that riddle? Of the, yes, of that uh, spooky riddle last, last week. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Uh, there's a man on a long journey. He, he's walking all day. He finally makes it into a town, but all the lights are out in the houses. All the street lights are out. Man walks onto him, holds up a certain number of fingers, and uh, our traveler correctly guesses. And how did he know? Well, did somebody send in the right answer? You we, said people we had send in several people send in the right answer. And of all the right answers, we selected one winner. And this is what that winner uh, said. This is what they wrote in. This comes from the McCoys. The kids are Hannah, Owen and Catherine. And this is what they wrote to us. We think the answer for the riddle in the one episode is that he saw the fingers because it was daylight. Is that the correct answer, Mr. Grant Pittman? That is the correct answer. He was ding, walking, ding, 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 ding. He was walking all day, but we never said it was night when That's he got true. there. That's so true. So they win uh, signed copies or copy, something signed from S.D. Smith. That's right. Books. That's right. Or a book. Or t-shirt or poster or headshot. Maybe they have a, maybe they have a photograph of just S.D. Smith and his, just and his al- working. a photo of their favorite authors. Right. <laughs> signed. Maybe they have a photo. Maybe they can have a signed photo of him just walking in a field. I don't know. Maybe that's something those kids would want. So congratulations to the McCoys <laughs> to claim your prize. Email us at podcasts at Goldberry. No, no, Books. we already, they already emailed us. We just email them back. Well, but I mean, what if they want to email to gloat? Okay, that's fine. I mean, I just, you know, they might want to say, haha, we won. Uh, but in the meantime, we will email them to let them know that they won. So maybe they would have, I don't know how this all is going to work. So it's really not hard. We'll email you and tell hmm. you you won. Okay. You okay. email us back your address. It seems too simple, but we should go with that. Is okay. there a, I mean, I, I, I've heard there's other riddles out there. I've never heard any of the other riddles well do why don't ha- I, I do have one why don't we you share found one another one i found another riddle so why don't we share another one for next week so that people can so there's at least two riddles there's at least two riddles in the universe but there might only be one good one but well, we least, haven't heard it yet so. <laughs> there's at least two riddles out there in the universe okay so this is the riddle for episode two so again if you want to send in an answer to this week's riddle graham what's that email address podcasts at goldberrybooks.com. That's right. Okay, so here's the riddle. Are you ready? Yes. Two fathers and two sons spent the day fishing. Oh, this is pleasant. I know. It's a beautiful day out on the lake. Perhaps they're in a boat. Maybe they're standing on the shore. Maybe they have their fishing lines tied to their toes, like in Tom Sawyer. (laughs) Whatever the scenario is exactly, what we do know is this. These two fathers and these two sons caught three fish. And yet this was enough for each of them to have one fish. How is this possible? It doesn't seem right. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Maybe this is a bad riddle. 
Hmm. Well, we'll find out when the people send in the answers. So again, here it is. There are two fathers and two sons who have spent the day fishing, and they only caught three fish. Yet this was enough for each of them to have one fish. How is this possible? If you think you know the answer to this riddle, you can email us at podcasts at goldberrybooks.com. Well, this seems like a good time to wrap up the nonsense. I suppose so. This was fun, though. It's a good one. So we will be back next week with episode three of the Withy Window podcast. And our guest next week is Karina Ann Glazer, who is the author of the Vanderbeeker books. Those are really fun books, and it's a really fun conversation. And we can't wait to bring that to you. So for Graham Pittman, I'm David Kern. This has been Withy Window, a whimsical interactive show for kids who love stories, words, and grown worthy jokes, featuring your favorite authors and illustrators. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.